Hello, it's Creative Chit Chat again and I'm Ryan McLeod. This week we're going on a bit of a journey with Claire Dow from where she started out in Galway um, through to her move to Glasgow and then finally up to Dundee where she is just now. Um, going through being a, a stage manager to producer and production manager to potentially now like an event manager. And we talk about some of the, the brilliant projects she's been involved in, um, Pantos at the King's Theatre, she went on tour with Riverdance, and she also did an amazing project last year, which we, we chat about quite in depth, and that was the the recreation of Dundee's Royal Arch out of cardboard. Um, some of you might have seen it down on Slessor Gardens around about May time last year. And it was an amazing spectacle. Loads of people got involved. Yeah, it was just fantastic to see that sort of public art in the city. Claire talks about her motivations behind that and how that came out of part of the Clore Leadership Programme. Actually, she was on at the same time as Beth Bate, who has been on a previous podcast. Um, and if you haven't listened to that one, it's another great one. So I definitely recommend going back and checking that one out. But yeah, we sort of wind through Claire's journey and all the things that affected it and then go off on, on various tangents and, and explore certain certain ideas. But thinking about the the podcast as a whole, um, it's going fantastically well. I'm, we're nearly up to 3,000 listens and averaging about 150 listens a week, which is just amazing. But it is a lot of work, um, and I am doing this completely for free. Um, so I'm on the lookout at the moment for some sponsors for the episodes. If you are a local business or you know of a local business who'd be interested in doing it, yeah, I'd love to have someone on to sponsor an episode or a couple of episodes. If you are interested or you'd like to have a chat about it, then you can drop me a tweet at cccdundee or an email uh, creative chit chat dundee at gmail.com I'm also actually still on the hunt uh, for a great space to do the recordings um, you'll notice a few doors opening and closing in this episode and that's because I'm still doing it in Fleet Collective and the space isn't ideal it, it's sort of good for now but I'm desperate to find a, a really quiet isolated room for free hopefully um, in the city centre somewhere so if you do have a room or you know of somewhere with a room like that please get in touch again on the, the same ways I'd really appreciate it so let's get on with the podcast so this is number 18 and it's with Claire Dow um, I'm originally from Galway in the west of Ireland and I got into theatre uh, I'm a theatre producer now and I started my journey back at Galway Youth Theatre, where I had finished school, and I was only 17, I was quite young finishing school, and my folks were a bit like, let me just hang around for a year before you go to uni. Which, of course, I thought was a great idea, so I was going to get a job, save up money, go to uni, it was all going to be amazing. And in that year, I joined Youth Theatre for the crack. It was a part-time course, and I did production backstage. I have no interest in being in front of the stage ever. And... Um, and it was, it was lovely, it was great fun, um, nobody, I wasn't taking it very seriously, um, I was working very hard obviously, but it wasn't 
like it wasn't a career path or anything like that. And I remember doing a work placement with Druid Theatre Company, who are a really well-known Irish theatre company. I didn't appreciate that at the time, of course. I was just in the one that was in Galway. Um, whereas my colleagues had all been sent to Cork in Dublin and really exciting places. I was kept in Galway because I wasn't 18. I remember having been there for three or four weeks working on a production and I remember the opening night I was setting up on stage and there was a wee stool on the stage and I just kind of sat there and I noticed the seats and I just went oh my god this is an actual job people actually get paid to do this for a living and I mean that was the end of it for me I uh, there was no way that I was going to go and do an arts degree and go and be a teacher none of I could be paid to hang out and do theatre and go to the pub Although at the time I was working in a nightclub, um, so <laughs> the production manager, he, production manager of this particular theatre company, uh, was incredibly influential because at that time I was working as a kitchen porter and I was hating it. It was horrendous. It was a whole lot of washing pots and mopping floors, and he managed to get me a job in the nightclub that he worked in, and um, which is Pal Ran. So even though I was seventeen, I was allowed to collect glasses, and this changed my life because the moment I remember my eighteenth birthday finishing work, collecting glasses, drinking my first pint at Legally in a nightclub and then being able to work behind the bar. And of course, once you can work behind a bar, that's you, you're sorted. My whole uh, the next 20s, the whole of my 20s involved like supplementing my income by working in bars and not, mostly nightclubs. But yes, to come back to the idea that, that theatre was a real job and um, didn't particularly exist in the West of Ireland in the late in early 90s. A lot of people thought, oh, it's, sure you're doing it for the crack. It's, you know, it's a hobby. And there's an awful lot of amateur dramatics in Ireland and a lot of people who do do it for a hobby. Anywho, I started university. I didn't quite get to Christmas um, when I got offered to go on a little tour with Druid. And the caveat was I was allowed to go on tour. It was only two weeks if I made sure I went to all my lectures. So I faithfully promised I would continue doing my English and archaeology degree. However, I never went to another lecture after that. And the poor production manager who had sworn that I would stick through university and felt that he'd let my parents down by giving me work, um, eventually turned around and had found a brochure for uh, theatre stage management training in the UK. Um, so the UK Association of Drama Colleges or something, um, I don't quite remember what they're called, but they had a brochure. And suddenly I was a bit like, oh, I could go to college, but I could do theatre. And, and that kind of legitimised it for me. So off I went to Scotland and uh, landed up in the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. And you were quite known. happy just to up sticks and leave. Well, I was only 20. I think when you're 20, you don't think it through. I mean, oh yeah, there was terrible personal trauma when my lovely boyfriend dumped me because I was going to another country. And we, and we have to remember, and it's so weird now, it was before the internet. It was before mobile phones. If you moved country, you were, you were gone. Um, so... So yeah, I mean, clearly there's this terrible, terrible personal story of the love of my life, um, who was a beautiful marine biologist, deciding that that was the end of us because I was going to move to Glasgow. To be fair to him, it was a good call. <laughs> but uh, at the time, that was dreadfully painful. But no, you're 20, you just kind of go for it. And I was excited. There was an element of of working in theatre and at that point I worked in theatre for a couple of years I was hanging out with people who were all kind of 10-15 years older than me which was grand but I did kind of want to go and have some fun mm -hmm. you know and the idea of going off to, to do college course with people my own age and find my own way was really appealing um, and I think growing up I was really lucky there'd always been this assumption that I would go to college or I would go to third level education so 
it was nice to do that. It was nice for my parents because it was dreadful when they dropped out of university. Do you know, I'd gone off and I was doing my arts degree and I was on some, you know, appropriate path for a young girl. And then suddenly I'd run off with all the, you know, genuinely what they consider to be arty parties for a really perilous career where you don't really know what's going on. And, and it wasn't something, my parents uh, enjoyed the theatre, but my mum had been a nurse. My dad's a chemical engineer. Fair play to them, incredibly supportive. I've always been incredibly supportive of, of all of, they've got four children. Very good with all of us, but equally didn't, it, you know, it's not, at the time, it certainly wasn't considered a real job. It wasn't until I finally, finally made it for my parents when I went on tour with Riverdance. When I did Riverdance, that was it. Suddenly they were able to describe to the friends and the neighbours what it was we were doing. Oh, Claire, sure she's away with Riverdance now. So do you think that's that's the desire? That because I've talked about this with other people, where the defining what you do is often more about other people putting you in a little box, <laughs> they're sort of understanding of you. And you think that was your parents going, "All right, okay, we understand that now. We have that concept." I think so. I think I think it's really difficult for parents, and I don't. I find this with my little brothers. My little brother does some sort of computer programming. Actually, he's the CEO of a big company in. Paralto. I mean, he's really important, but he's still my little brother, and I really will never take him seriously. Um, and so that's that's you know your parents have got to feel that same way. They don't really understand what you do, and it's um, it's not until they come and visit you in your working capacity. So having then gone to Glasgow and trained to be a stage manager, my dad would come visit, and he'd come and see a show that I was working on. And then he'd come to the bar afterwards and hang out with all the beautiful actresses and all the glamorous folk of theatre. And I think he really, really enjoys that. He still does. My dad's uh, quite a sociable guy. He still really enjoys coming, visiting uh, all of us kids in our, in our workplaces and going for Friday evening pints with the office folk after work and getting to know who we're hanging out with in a way that is, in a way that I'm now less embarrassed about. I mean, don't get me wrong. My dad would turn up and you'd be like, oh my God, my dad's here. And he's telling the writer all about what he thinks of the play. Oh, jeez. That's really not, not, it's not as cool. I mean, and actually, everybody thought it was hilarious and everybody's always been lovely about it. Whereas, so as now, that's fine. But there was a period where you would kind of keep your parents a little bit away. And, and it's hard for them to know what it is you're, you're doing. And you don't have, I don't have conversations with them about, oh, I, you know, I get up in the morning and I check my emails and... You have to go do a site visit, or I'm trying to negotiate contracts. So you, those aren't the conversations that I have uh, with my parents. So I think it can be hard for folk to, to get it. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard enough to explain to my peers what I do sometimes. Um, so yes, so went off to Glasgow, had the best couple of years. It was brilliant. Um, I remember being uh, slagged off by somebody who'd gone to Queen Margaret Uni about the cardboard cornflake nature of my degree said if you collected enough tokens off the back of a cardboard cornflake box you could get that degree and his point you know was relatively valid you had to turn up every day work on a number of productions and you know we pretty much were in college from 10 till 10 every single day um, and you just worked on shows you just did shows back to back back to back back to back you did operas you did pantos it was phenomenal um, and at the end they gave you a degree and graduation day was amazing because we genuinely all sat in a little row going, ha ha, they're giving us a degree, this is hilarious. Um, and my year group have done really well. We've all gone off uh, and a high percentage of us are still working in theatre. 
um, which I think is the strength of that way of working, that vocational degree, where you are just, we, I mean, we had to write a dissertation at the end, which broke quite a lot of us, because we weren't doing any academic writing. But that vocational degree where you're, you're just practicing, you're just working, you're doing the job, and then you go out into the world and you're ready to do the job um, with all of the skills uh, of having been through each department. So there's something really important. Um, when I left Ireland, I genuinely had people going, but you're your ground, you're working. What you do is you work your way up. And I had a similar number of people going, this is the best thing you will do. You're going to go and do in three years what would take you 15 out in the field. And I think there's something important about in college, I wanted to do lighting. That's all I was interested in. And we were, we had to do every single thing. We had to do carpentry, we had to do painting, we had to do prop making. So we literally had to go through every department. And it gives you the most amazing communication tool. Because it means then when a scenic artist comes to talk to you about your lights, you know what they're on about. You know what what uh, their motivating factors are in going, I'm not sure about using that green light on my beautiful red set. And you know what the carpenter means when, when you're trying to describe where you want to hang something or do something. So in terms of learning a language of other departments and that communication, I think it was brilliant for all of that. Couldn't fault it. Um, and, and there's something really important that I carried through all my practice, which is about trying to um, break down silos. I think that there's something really important when you work in an organisation that you try and figure out what everybody does. And I'm really in favour of, I know the NHS has started doing it, um, where they do um, work placements. So the man, the doctors go and hang out with the managers. And the managers go and hang out with the doctors. And they'll do little uh, work experiences in each other's departments. Because what that does is, of course, it, it means that you know what they're on about. You know what their pressures are. You know what their drivers are. You know why they need to know what you're doing. They're not just checking up on you because they're a manager. They're, they're actually going, well, what if this happened instead? Would that be helpful? And all of that kind of service design stuff. So that that experience in college of having to do, and I didn't want to do half the stuff, but having to do it all actually is really useful. And I think in big organisations where you've got a quite self-contained production team who don't really know what the marketing team are doing, who don't really know maybe what the creative learning team are doing, who certainly don't know what management and admin are up to, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for having to spend time with each other mm. so that you you can you can just, all that communication becomes a lot better. It's just, a, I suppose, an appreciation of... Oh, God, the complexities yeah. of what needs done. And yeah. The way that I work, I the design-based stuff, I, I don't do a lot of coding, mm. but I can do bits and pieces and I have an appreciation and I can I can talk in a way to a developer that I have an appreciation of the amount of effort. I was just going to say, needed. so you'll know what the effort is. You know what you're asking. Mm. You're not saying, can you just code this with no appreciation of what that means to that person, mm. like how many hours that's going to take. Or when you say things like, can you just change that bit? You know, like you really yeah. have, like you say, an awareness of what you're asking. God, it's so important. Mm. And actually it's lacking massively quite often. And people it, don't it, tend to have that. And what's really important is those relationships. Yes. Um, yeah. So that people will come to you with the, if they have a problem, or they yeah. have a question. Yeah. And it starts that conversation rather than being like, oh, so-and-so just wants me to change. No, no, I know, exactly. So it's not, it's not like do what I've said because I've said it. It's do... It, let's have a conversation about how it might be better or how, how would that work for you or what how so you've got you're open to their chat you've got to listen yeah. it's so important to listen I did I was really lucky to do some coaching training which uh, was so helpful because I haven't always been a very good listener 
I've always gone, I've got the answer, I've got the, I have to come up with the answer, and, and desperately trying to go, I will solve that problem. And actually, if you stop for a minute and listen a bit harder, other people also have very good ideas on how you might solve things. And sometimes they're right, or more right, brighter than you are. But you need that space to listen. Mm. And, that, and like you say, that relationship, yeah. they need to be, you need to have that conversation. So where was I? So university. University, yeah. Went to college, uh, had a ball, left and started working freelance as a stage manager. Uh, like I say, uh, I'm still going home to Ireland quite a lot to do festivals. So I do the Go Arts Festival and the Dublin Theatre Festival and Edinburgh Fringe and the International Festival. So my summers were really beautifully set out. And then, like I say, I made it. I, made, I went on tour with Riverdance. So I did UK, I did all around Europe, I did Australia. And for about a year with Riverdance, which was, that was that was it. My parents were delighted. I was, I was set then. And um, eventually... I was, I was working as a stage manager and stage managers do the physical setting up of the stage space and um, when you do small tours I was really lucky to tour with 784 theatre company around the Highlands and Islands of Scotland and I, oh, I had some amazing jobs um, and it was all really exciting and brilliant but there does come a point when you yeah, don't really want to be the one unloading the van at eight o'clock anymore or or actually I got to a point where I just wanted to work with my pals we used to do um, Panto at the King's. It was the best gig of the year. Um, was doing the King's Panto because um, for a stage manager calling the show, you're the one telling people when to set off the pyros or when to fly people in or when the trap should open or when the lights should change. And actually, it's really difficult. It's like a properly, brilliantly challenging bit of work. So where where are you in relation to the production? Are you backstage? Or are you sitting you're, in a little booth? Sit- yeah, you? you're sitting backstage. So usually, you're um, when you look at the stage... They're tucked away in the right-hand corner. So you can see what's happening on stage. And the stage manager, the deputy stage manager's role is you you literally have a script in front of you and you follow the script. So as the actors say the words, you're following it. And at various points, you'll tell the lighting to change um, or you'll tell the sound to do something or you'll tell the pyro to go off or for the fairy queen to fly in. Um, And like I say, Panto's really great because normally there's four things happening at once. So the lights are changing and the music's starting and there's a pyro going off while somebody flies in and somebody else is going down a trap and the dancers are all arriving and there's a bed spinning in the middle of the stage. So Panto was always a big one, but I really got to the point where I just wanted to work with my pals. So obviously people move on and things change and I just found myself going into jobs going, I I can't be bothered getting to know somebody else. (laughs) I want to work with my friends. I slowly moved into, actually that's not true, I entirely deliberately moved into arts management because a friend of mine had a baby and that was the end of her working life as a stage manager. Because um, you can't, stage management uh, rehearsals take place during the day for about four weeks, so you're doing ten till six during the day and then you switch to doing four weeks where you're working six till ten in the evening. So the working patterns are really irregular and uh, I watched a really good friend of mine have a baby and and was and she was unable to work. She just couldn't get the childcare to be organised. And I knew that at some point I wanted babies. I wanted a family. Um, and I was and that kind of coincided with the not wanting to unload vans and wanted to just wanted to hang out with my friends. Um, so getting a bit fussy about the work I was doing. And I was really lucky um, that uh, my partner Ian uh, had been doing a show with a lovely woman called Julie Ellen at a time when she was setting up an organisation called the Playwright Studio. And she and I had a bit of a chat and I went, I've never worked in an office. 
I have no idea what happens in an office. And I was quite nervous about that at a time when she was setting up an organisation who, who were just like, we just need help. We just need people to be in the office. And it, it was, I did some admin. And then I stayed and opportunities came up to become the general manager. So I was uh, helping to run the organisation. And then I had babies. So I had gone from being backstage working on shows to working in a sort of talent development organisation to supporting writers and and to working 10 till 6, Monday to Friday, with bank holidays. It was a revelation. I loved it. So um, that was a sort of new phase of your life. You'd really, sort of, it was. That, you've that had idea. that fun adventure bit, yeah. and now you're looking for a bit more stability. Yeah, I, it, yeah. Because when, when you are a freelance stage manager, your jobs are... Gosh, if you get an eight-week job, you're doing quite well. So how does so, the, this whole freelance part of it work? How do you, how do you get work? How do you raise your profile? <laughs> it, it is genuinely all about who you know. It's about it's about uh, doing good at what you do. So if you if you're good at what you do, people will recommend you elsewhere, and you will become known as somebody who's good at whatever the role is. And and it's it's and it's a lot about networking. It's about going in theatre. It's about going along to first nights or go, going along to sector events or meetings or training events and just. Spent, you know, investing that time and um, being out and about and seeing folk. So quite often it's, you know, you'll get off the job sort of a week after somebody's bumped into you because you're fresh in their minds. At that time, at that time as a stage manager, you, you, you very quickly develop little networks. So you get to know production managers and then they offer you the work first. And if you're able to do it, that's great. And if you're not, then it goes to somebody else. So as a, as a freelance production uh, person, that's you, you get to know the production managers and then they hire you and that's essentially how it is and they have their own conversations about who's good and who's done well and you find stage managers who end up doing tours all the time and they get quite good at doing tours so that's back then having worked my way up to the giddy heights of general manager at player at studio that arts management freelance life is very different and having become an arts manager I love that. I love that. I am now an arts manager. I remember going along to my first kind of arts management event going, what am I doing here? So is that a new box that your parents yeah. have to put you in? Oh, uh, I think they slightly gave up after, after a while. <laughs> they just, they were working theatre. That was, that was it. Um, and um, yeah, so, and then, that was all ticking along lovely, and then we moved to Dundee. So I'd been in Glasgow uh, for 15 years, and it was great. And my husband uh, is a production manager. Well, sorry, he was a technical manager at the time. And he had done six six months at Dundee Rep, not long after graduation. So having, we, sorry, we were in college together. Um, I, didn't, I didn't look very hard when I came to Scotland. <laughs> I found a lovely boy and stuck with him. So having, uh, we were in college together and he left college and went off and did six months at Dundee Rep. And we had spent the intervening years joking about when he was chief at Dundee Rep. And then the job came up. So he was going to be like he was going to be chief electrician at Dundee Rep. And this was great crack. Sure, we'll all move to Dundee. And uh, I confess I didn't think it through very much. Just thought when well, he's got to do it, you know, if you never do anything, you'll have no stories to tell. So uh, he and I and our two lovely wee kids uh, moved to Dundee about four and a half years ago now. And, uh, and it's worked out pretty well. He's now head of production stage at the Rep. So that's all good. But for me, what it meant was that I left my job. Um, I, 
I had muted for a couple of months and then gave that up. And then suddenly I found myself, actually, I was unemployed. And um, and then I got a little bit of work, you know, just a couple of weeks. And then I got a couple of weeks somewhere else. And suddenly I was a bit like, oh, I'm now actually officially freelance. And all that meant was that I couldn't sign on between jobs. <laughs> I was suddenly self-employed. So, uh, like, it's such a scam. It so, sounds like know, that became, that was almost unintentional. Oh, it was completely unintentional. Abs- I was massively unintentional. I never meant to be freelance. I, I have just spent four years waiting for a job to come up. Um, and I'm really resistant to being freelance. Uh, I haven't, like, I have an office, but I work on a stupid little tablet with a keyboard. So I... I'm, I'm in a bit of trouble with my, with my husband because last summer I hurt my back quite badly and it was almost entirely due to sitting hunched over a, like a not a proper setup in my desk because to set up my workspace properly would mean that I was actually, I was committed to it. And same, I don't have an accountant because that would mean I, I was committed to it and I'm never going to get a desk in Fleet because that would be, I, I would be officially embracing freelance life and I, I'm not I'm the, like totally like no 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 so why why won't you um I oh it's really personal reasons it's about uh it's about not knowing what's coming next I really don't it doesn't sit comfortably with me and I it doesn't sit comfortably with me either well I know and the thing is that it's always fine I, you know I, it's never not been fine but that's not it's not enough for me to go I've got work till the end of the month and then I don't know I can't I can't cope with that and there's something about having children now and you know we want to know what we're doing in Easter holidays and I don't know if I'm working then you know we want to know what we're doing in the summer holidays I don't know uh, there's a big family event this summer but I'm going maybe I can come maybe I can't maybe we can all fly to Donegal I don't know I, I just I'm just not comfortable with that and I'm really resistant so Joe Lafferty did a Fetch Kucha talk and he talked about um the precariat Oh my God, I can't tell you how resistant I am to the fact that somebody's got a name for what I am. Oh my God, I hate it. I'm just like, no, I don't, don't name it. Don't give, that doesn't, that just makes it normal and okay. And it's not normal and not okay to not know where, you know, when my next job is coming in and whether or not I've got money to do stuff. And when I say do stuff, it's not about holidays. It's about whether or not we're going to buy crisps at the weekend. Do you know, are we going to have that little treat in the Tesco basket? I think you're describing the sort of mental process of the majority of people that are sitting next door in fleet. Absolutely. I know, and it's not easy for anybody. Um, But in that, for me, I found solace in that. Mm. Mm -hmm. I can appreciate that there's all these other people just doing the same thing and making it work. Yeah. And that I've... I've got that as a network and a hub and people that I can go to and they can help me. And actually there's something, for for a while I struggled with the loneliness of it. Because mm. having gone from working in an office every day, I was suddenly like staring at my kitchen walls going, this is this is mental. And I didn't, at the time of course, I didn't know very many people in Dundee. So I didn't have those networks, I didn't have uh, that companionship, I didn't have folk to go for cups of tea with. But I do now and I think there's something really important, as you say, about that collective, just seeing people or having somewhere to go, actually, is really important. Um, and and when you talk about how people get work, it's about those networks. It's about just people knowing that you're around, which is really important. And actually, I didn't do mu- enough of that or a, a much of that um, when I was first freelance because it was kind of accidental and I was still looking for work and I hadn't quite got myself in the right it had, which sounds weird because I had been freelance in my 20s but actually you get out of practice 
And also I was freelance in, as an arts manager, which isn't really a freelance job, which is when I started calling myself a producer. Because actually it turns out that producing is a freelance job. But I didn't, I, I genuinely didn't know what a producer was when I first started doing it. I was, I don't know, somebody offered me a job and I literally ran away in a panic going, I don't know what producers do. I have no idea. And that film does not help. The film The Producers, where they sing and dance, and it's hilarious, but uh, it's not helpful. Um, whereas, whereas now, of course, I, you know, I understand you know, producers are really freelance general managers. You do, on a day-to-day basis, you're doing all the contracting. And there's, this is linked to an interesting shift in the way that theatre is being funded. There's an awful lot of small organisations now getting project funding to do a play, as opposed to be getting organisational funding. So actually there's been a rise in, in the incidence of freelance working for arts managers because you'll get a project, com- a pr- company who's literally come together around a project as opposed to setting up a long-term organisation. So the, And they need the skills, they need people who can do the contracts with the creative team, that can do the contracts with the actors, that can do the logistics of what it means to take a van and travel around six parish halls up in the Highlands um, and, and do the negotiations with the venues and, and work all of that out. So there's a sort of market need for there is a market need, yeah. There genuinely is a market need. That's uh, and that's something that once you start doing it, of course, then your network's build and you get offered more of it. I think the thing that I struggled with most was how much of it I was doing that wasn't in Dundee. So I I looked after a show last spring, in fact, this time last year, um, that was that rehearsed and toured from Glasgow. Just felt so disconnected to it because I went, you know, I went to visit a couple of times, but it was a really difficult job because I didn't. I wasn't engaged with it particularly, so that and that makes it more difficult. Whereas the times I've worked for Dundee Rep, it's been gorgeous because I can pop into the Rep all the time, uh, and it's been really lovely because they've uh, a couple of times now when they've had work leave the building, they've got me in to look after it. So when, in my father's words, toured the Highlands and Islands and went to Glasgow, and then went to New York, I got to do those gigs, um, which was fantastic. And then more recently, I did the TV at the Stag and Blackback Oil tour around Scotland. So that's all come together nicely. And of course, in the middle of all of that, I did Chlor. And that has absolutely, completely transformed the way that I work in really practical ways. So the Chlor Leadership Programme, what it does is it's, you apply. I, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't really know what I was applying for. It's a training opportunity where they are developing cultural leaders. And I didn't really think of myself as a leader. I was like, I don't know. I mean, people go away to rooms somewhere and make up strategies, right? That's not me. But they pay for your time and they give you a whopping great training budget. So you can go away and do training courses or you can go and do study visits and and you do a three-month placement somewhere significantly different to where you have worked before. And it's all structured so beautifully that without knowing what's happening, you start to just think in a slightly different way. And you it gives you the opportunity to spend time thinking about what's important to you. And actually, that's really important. And their ethos is that leaders aren't necessarily, as I thought, the people who are doing all the talking. They're not the people standing up at conferences asking difficult questions or being clever. They're not the loudest people in the room uh, or the tall, shouty ones. And actually, what the Clore Leadership Programme does beautifully is that it, it teaches us all about how we are our own leaders. And that's embodied particularly in Sue Hoyle, who uh, runs it, uh, who sadly is leaving. Sue is the most graceful, quietest, she's petite little woman. 
And her first session that you do in Clora is Sue standing up in front of you, describing how she doesn't speak at conferences. She doesn't ask the questions. She doesn't, that's not her style of leadership. And actually to start like that, to start off just debunking the idea of what leaders are, it's amazing because you're sitting in the room going, and you are sitting in the room full of really shiny people who have spent the tea break telling you all the amazing things they've done quite loudly and being quite intimidating. And then this lovely little woman stands up and goes, so I am in charge of all of this and I'm not, I don't need to shout. I don't need to raise my voice. I don't need to be clever or show off. I'm just, I am who I am. And I do the things I do for reasons that are considered. And so, of course, then you spend the next nine months uh, going, well, what's important to me and what drives me and what makes me happy? And it's been uh, it's been fantastic because actually it's made me really deliberate in the choices of work. I, I never turned down work, ever. I would take everything. I was so terrified there wouldn't be the next thing. I think that's a, a way a lot of freelance people tend to be. You go, somebody's offered me a job. Well, I better take it. That's great. And actually, having done Clover, I started to turn down work. And even the application process really makes you consider what you're doing and why you're doing it and what difference you're making in the world and all those really uh, nasty questions that really you'd rather not think about. So through the application process, I was inventing uh, the Dundee Arts Festival because I would like to run a massive big Dundee Arts Festival. I think we could do with one. And, and you had to, as the interview process, you had to pitch. So you had to pretend they had 50 grand and you were pitching for it. And I pitched to bring Olivier Grosset to Dundee to do one of his amazing People's Towers, which is where he recreates a building out of cardboard. So this is my entirely fictional festival, bringing a real project to Dundee. And so I went into Clore with this idea that wouldn't it be great if, you know, one day. And of course, through Clore, they quite often refer back to where do you want to be and what do you want to do? And I would kind of go back to that lovely safe place because I'd already thought about that. Um, so I was like, I've got my answer. It's like when you're a child and all the grown-ups go, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you just say teacher because it gets them off your back. There was a little bit of me going, all through Clover going, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to run an arts festival. <laughs> and I'm going to do Carver Tower. And then, and then this amazing thing happened. I finished Clover and it was all lovely. And through, I had sort of a couple of things that, Clore enabled me to do and what, one of the things I was really clear I wanted to get out of it was I wanted to embed myself in Dundee a little bit more and they were quite cautious about that because they, you know, they want you to be thinking about Scotland and thinking about the UK and thinking about the world but for me I'd not long arrived in Dundee and I wanted to get to know the people here and, and how I could contribute to the city so through the Clore stuff um, I got in touch with Stuart Murdoch and I went along to festival and events committee meetings and I got to know him a little bit and he was really generous in letting me come to meetings. I mean, I, he's a brilliant man in terms of being really open and welcoming. And uh, and actually, that for me is the main, it's like the thing that Dundee has that I've not experienced in the other cities I've been to. It's like Dundee's madly open. I love folk who want to do things. It's brilliant. The amount of permission we have here and the ease with which you can reach decision makers and the ease with which you can just find the people that you need to find in order to do stuff in the city is is like nowhere else. And it really isn't. There is really nowhere else like that. But you need that drive to go and do it. Yeah, you need to have something that you want to do. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of 
a thank you cup of tea with Stuart at the end of my chlora. I was like, let's have a wee cup of tea and a bit of a chat. And we were having this lovely chat about public art. And uh, he was talking about these inflatable things and showing pictures of, of some artists. And I was, I was in, it was my turn. I went, well, have you heard of Olivia Grostet? He does these amazing people's towers and they're all fantastic and people participate. And Stuart sort of turned around and went, well, why don't you do it? And literally, of course, in the way that happens on the back of an envelope, he went, well, you could get this bit of money here and that bit of money there. And I left his office going, oh, oh. Meanwhile, I had done a Petra Kucha talk. And this was the first time in my life that I had stood up and been me. It was awful. Oh, my God, the sweats. It was horrible. Because I'm great. I can stand up. I can talk to you about the organisation work I'm working for or the project I'm representing or the work that I'm doing. But to stand up in front of a crowd of people and be like, this is me and here's the things I like doing and, and ta-ta. Um, but again, I had used um, A People's Tower as one of the examples of the sort that I talked a lot about shared experiences. And I think that there's something really important about people sharing experiences and bringing people together. And theatre does this. You bring people together in a room to experience somebody's story. And actually that that influences people and that changes people and it creates community. And depending on the experience, it can create civic pride and it's really important but it's that coming together to share something ideally to make something to do something together and um, that uh, really really connects people and um, so that was my chat and on the same evening uh, the lovely Jonathan uh, Jonathan Reed from the Voight Partnership was talking about his trip to Africa with school kids to build houses and afterwards he got in touch with me and he was a bit like can we not, can we not do that building a towering thing and I was a bit like Oh, I, I don't I don't know but it really um, laid the spark and it was Jonathan that introduced me to the Dundee Institute of Architects who then became my cover organisation because they were a charity and they could put all the money through their bank accounts and I could put them on forms to apply for things as an individual I couldn't do but yeah essentially I had done Clore and gone blah 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 people's tower and then suddenly I was in Dundee with people going on you go then why don't you do it yeah because it seemed the way you talk about it you didn't really believe you were actually going to do it. Not really, no. Until the, the little seed started. And then, do you think there was still a reluctance? Oh my God, there? completely. Like, I remember getting, I remember kind of going, yeah, yeah, totally, let's do it, let's do it. And I remember getting to January and just being a bit like, how am I, I have no, I have like nothing. I have no money in the bag. I have a space because uh, Sarah Craig and the Six Centre Management team were like, well, you could use Cesar Gardens, which wasn't open at the time. So which was still fenced off bit of turf. Um, but of course, that's at that point, Stuart had, oh God, it's so convoluted. Stuart had gone, why don't you do the Royal Arch? The Royal Arch idea wasn't mine, it was Stuart's. And I just went, oh yeah, that's a good idea because it'll tie in with heritage and maybe I can get some money because it's historical. You know, genuinely, my producer trying to find the funds head was going, yeah, it might be useful if it's got some sort of heritage thing. Okay, let's do the Royal Arch. Not really knowing what the Royal Arch was, by the way. I'd, I am now an expert. I can tell you all about the Royal Arch. Uh, it's brilliant. And of course, loads of people started approaching me once word got out. But I genuinely remember sitting in January going, okay, I've got a space. I've got the artist. And we've talked about what dates. So all I need to do, and, and, um, and it's, it sounds simple. It's like, all you need is some space and some people and the money to pay the artist. And then that's, you're sorted. Because um, Olivier has a UK agency who um, use out arts who actually do all of the, the hard work. They get the cardboard. They get the tape. They send a team who have done it before. 
and they, you know, so they, and they supply all their sort of health and safety drawings and engineering all happens with Olivier. So actually, in some cases, all I had to do, all, all I had to do, a bit of space, a couple of people, get the money. How hard could that be? I remember sitting in January going, I have none of it. I, I mean, I've just, I've booked, I've booked him and I booked the space, but I don't know if it's going to go ahead. I had, I had one of those amazing conversations. Do you know what? It happened regularly. I think you'll find as a freelancer that that we're so lucky in Scotland. I think particularly Scotland. I found it in theatre in Scotland in a way that doesn't exist in theatre outside of Scotland, I don't believe, where people are madly generous. People are brilliantly generous with their time and with their advice and with their cups of tea. I have a notebook filled with people that I went for cups of tea with between January and March uh, last year that was all about going who do you think would pay for a bit of cardboard building? How would I get the money for that? And Sandy Thompson from the Culture and Enterprise Office was phenomenal. Because I literally sat with her going, I, don't, I have no energy. I can't, I can't do this all by myself. This is ridiculous. What am I doing? And I'm, you know, it's a massive, massive job. And, and she just kind of sat, she went, who would pay for that? Well, what about a demolition company to pay for demolition day? I was like, oh, oh okay. And what about a building company to pay for build day? And, and other suggestions that ranged from the people who, uh, who delivered the timber for the discovery, because it was near the discovery. So surely the people who, who are the timber yard who did the timber for the discovery might want to pay. I mean, all of that kind of, the sponsorship chats that went from a bit silly to actually turned out to be genius. So we ended up uh, getting sponsorship. I love it. I keep calling me. I ended up getting sponsorship through, uh, from BAM Construction who were amazing. They gave me cash, which was great, but actually they did, they, um, Jim Ward just said the best thing. I was a bit like, I don't, I'm not really sure about the overnight security and the fencing and stuff. And he was like, oh, we can do that for you. <laughs> I was just a bit like, oh my God, massive, massive chunk of worry about what happens if somebody tries to climb it at night or sets it on fire or does something. And he was just like, we'll do that. Because, you know, they've got a site just next door. Yeah. They had a guy just sit in his car beside the cardboard arch all night but it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in that you just need to have a conversation and make those relationships with the right people yes yeah and for them it's an easy step but for you it's a gigantic leap i know and i think sometimes people don't realize and i do it myself when i say to somebody oh i can do that you don't realize the gift that you're giving to the other person and i think that business the businesses in dundee were amazing particularly ones like who didn't give cash i think there's a whole thing that we're not always tapping into, or, or we are tapping into, but not acknowledging, I think, always, is the amount of support you get in kind, hmm. where businesses or organisations or people, they can't give you money, but they can give you time, or they can give you resources, or they can give you materials. Explore buses. We were allowed to put a poster on every single bus in Dundee. You know, you can, that's, that is promotional stuff that you cannot buy. Hmm. And what's even better... Well, you can, I, but it'd be quite expensive. Well, yeah, I, don't, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't even ask what it would actually cost. Um, and in fact, it's terrible because when I put in my budget, I had all this in-kind stuff and I'd put in like a couple of hundred quid. And actually, it's probably worth thousands. But even better than that, all I had to do was send them a little JPEG and they printed them too. <laughs> it's just, they were... I, I can't describe the, like all of that support when it started to come through. It was amazing. But yeah, so... I got Olivier to town and we built loads of boxes and everybody had a lovely time and it was massive and really exciting. And uh, and, uh, and for me, like, 
massively exciting to to make something happen that was so visually spectacular and interesting and fun, but also wasn't theatre. It made it like, and I don't think that would happen in other cities either. That I would be allowed out of my little pigeonhole, and you talked earlier about being put into boxes. I don't think I would have been allowed out of my theatre box if I was in Glasgow, and there because there's you know there's too many theatres really. Mm. You know I'd only come out far enough to go and work for another theatre organisation. Whereas in Dundee, it was brilliant. I got to do some participatory art. Uh, which is fab. But when you were talking about it, you're essentially still doing the same role. Oh God, yes, yeah, I am, absolutely. It's exactly the same role, but just a different project. And that, um, I'm able now to articulate those transferable skills in a way that I wasn't before I did the arch. Um, and I remember, I remember standing there after it had toppled God, the relief. It had managed to go up safely. It managed to take it down again safely. Everybody had a ball. And just kind of going, that's my clore thing done now. I went in with my interview going, I'm going to do this thing. And now I have done it. I've been given the tools and now I've done it. And uh, the pattern back and that was grand. But of course, nothing's ever that straightforward. The only reason I was able to do the arch was that I'd applied for a job that I didn't get. And I was massively disappointed not to get it. But of course, it turned out to be the right thing. And it's the same, you say no to work, something else comes up and it turns out to be the right thing. Mm. I think humans, I don't know, do we not, we tell our own stories, don't we? You end up afterwards looking back and making it all make sense and making it into this lovely, neat package of a journey mm. uh, where you've gone from, you know, doing a youth theatre show to doing theatre shows, studying, doing theatre shows, to now I'm into more visible stuff that's out of buildings onto the streets. So has that experience of the, the arch made you reconsider the types of jobs that you want to do going forward? Yeah, yeah. I think I, it's, it, it's quite difficult because um, I want I want to be the creative instigator of the, of the projects that I do. I'm really not all that excited about somebody approaching me going, I've got a show and it needs to tour. And, you know, I'm, I'm the artistic director, so I'm doing the arty stuff. I'm doing the creative stuff and you're literally just doing logistics. It's really difficult because just, that's just boring. Who wants to do that? Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know, I'm getting a bit above myself, but I want that creative input. I want to make the work. Or It's funny that you ask that because I'm trying to make something happen at the moment and increasingly I'm going, oh, I can't be bothered making the work. I want to program the work. So I want it to already exist and that I know it's good. <laughs> I want to bring it in, <laughs> which is slightly, which is a different thing. Um, well, I think there's amazing stuff happening out in the world, and I particularly like street arts. I really love outdoor, visible stuff. I think there's know? there's a massive lack of that in Dundee. Yeah, yeah, there's there's work to be done there. And it's so. conversations that I've had on the podcast and out with yeah. with many people, and that there's a lot of opportunity, and you go and see it in other places, and you yeah. think wow, imagine we could have something like that in Dundee. Like, even if you, you just look at what's been put under the bridge, the north-south yeah. uh, mural work, yeah, it really livens up some grey, dead concrete mm -hmm. in that, okay, let's do that ten more times round about the city. Yeah, yeah. And then create a tour off the back of that exactly. and send people exactly. round. Yeah, all of that. There's yes. all, all of that. And I think, I think Dundee is, is getting there. I think there's definitely a move towards more visible, exciting... I mean, I, I'm particularly fond of events... But I think that this, I mean, Dundee's already got amazing street art and amazing public art. And the work that John Gray's been doing for so long is all brilliant. 
Um, I think there's something that's a bit more, what interests me is more participatory. It's more that shared experience. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily going and seeing something painted. It's much more about, well, can you have a go doing painting? Or, you know, can we paint, can we all paint something together? Mm -hmm. And then in two months time, do it again or change it. Um, so I really enjoy things like light night. Really, like, you know, it's, it's those big kind of fun family events that everybody can join in. That what Mal did and uh, like Biome Collective did on the steeple. Did you play? I didn't play. Oh, I saw it. I saw it going. Uh, it was the best crack ever. I mean, it was buttons and noises. I mean, genuinely, that stuff. I love that stuff. I love that interactive thing. And I went up to Spectra in Aberdeen, and um, which did an awful lot of that same kind of. It's a light. It's a light festival in Aberdeen, and an awful lot of it was that interactive. You know, press some buttons and the projections will change, and there's music, or there's a light up keyboard, or um, or spiders in the graveyard. It's amazing spiders in the graveyard. I was a little bit like, do you think we could do that in the house? No, it felt it felt it was, it was on verging on slightly disrespectful. It was like it was genuinely spider like neon tubes, spiders flashing on and off. They kind of looked like they were curling out of the graves and there was kind of creepy music. It was amazing. It was the best crack ever. So yeah, all of that lovely, lovely kind of visual stuff that's free. You just go along and check it out for 10 minutes or stay for an hour. Yeah, I'll find ways to do more of that. So you sort of mentioned the, the ability to, to connect with people really easily in the city oh, yeah. and start to make things happen. Yeah, but I'm interested to know your sort of perspective on the, the creative community especially having come from another city and then yeah. trying to embed yourself as a freelancer and grow those networks. Uh, I'm just going to sound really gushy, but I love the work that Creative Dundee do. Mm -hmm. um, I think actually Creative Dundee really helped me settle into the city. Uh, I went along to Petrocuccia. I remember going to my first Petrocuccia night and it was here in Chambers East. And sitting there and I moved to Dundee not knowing anything about the city. And, and Dundee at the time, and probably still is the case now, but... They don't, you don't tell anybody what you're doing. Basically, you can be sitting in Glasgow with no notion of what's happening in Dundee. And I was asked repeatedly by people, why are you moving to Dundee? It's like, well, we moved because my husband got a job, so we're, that's why we're going. But literally, I, apart from the fact the rep was here, knew nothing about Dundee. So my first batch of Kucha night, I was just sitting there going, oh, I don't know what this is, but we'll go along. And, um, and it was amazing. It was just person after person talking about what they were doing, that they were in Dundee doing interesting things, um, that there was that festivals were on. It was the November one or the yeah, the autumn one. So the science festival was on and Neon was on and the Film Discovery Film Festival was on and the Literary Festival was happening. All these things were happening. And I was like, oh my God, there's loads happening that you just don't know about if you're outside Dundee. So there was this moment of going, <sighs> good there's stuff here that's I can relax a little bit and then I met Gillian and Gillian basically was just lovely and went oh, we're so glad you're here welcome to Dundee and it was like really simple words that just made me go okay just relax it'll all be fine there are lovely people here there are lovely things happening here and um I just kind of got to know people a little bit and the, the sense that there is stuff happening in the city was really good and I volunteered I went and volunteered for the Discovery Film Festival at the DCA so I got to know like folk at the DCA and, and I got had that lovely moment that you sometimes get when you move to a new city where you're walking down the street and you kind of say hello to somebody passing for the first time that like that's that I remember the first time that happened to me in Glasgow 
And I remember the first time it happened to me in Dundee. And for me, there's something, I think it's because I'm from a tiny rural part of West of Ireland where everybody does know each other. So you're constantly saying hello. Like you can't get down the street without saying hello to people. Um, but there's something for me that's, that makes me feel like I belong in a city where I can walk down the street and say hello to people or maybe bump into somebody. And madness of madness might go for a cup of tea with them, depending on if they're nice or not. But just that's, that that scene existed or was brought together by Creative Dundee on those evenings and was really important. And yeah, obviously, it's interesting coming to Dundee for my husband's job. He had the rep. He had a ready-made sort of social circle, which I was part of as well. But obviously with small children, it was quite difficult. He would go to the pub on the Friday evening. And every now and then I might get to go too. But yeah, in terms of a creative scene, I had no idea what was here before I got here. Uh, and Creative Dundee then went, there is stuff here. It's brilliant. And then you slowly, I, I, God, it's just with everything, isn't it? You start going to things and you start meeting people. Um, and actually there's great, um, they're not all Creative Dundee events, but there's a lot of open events in Dundee. Uh, that you know people can just go to so once you start getting the newsletters or you start following the twitter feeds or you start following the facebook accounts actually you can spot the opportunities to go to stuff pretty easily i would say yeah i'd say for me as well it's really key um who you follow on twitter can, yeah. Yeah, isn't it? can completely change your vision of whether it's politics or whether it's yeah. what's going on in Dundee yeah. and yeah you, you sort of create this world around you the social media and your i know and you've got to be careful news. of your bubbles yeah. Be really careful of your bubbles, but um, but yeah, it's great because actually you you know what's going on, mm-hmm. uh, and increasingly I tend to find things on Facebook because because it's annoying. It just shows what everybody else is up to. But it goes, oh, such and such is interested in an event. And you're like, oh, I'm quite interested in that event too. Um, and then there are smaller like, but happy things that you can do. Like I remember doing fun a day for the first time. Fun a day is the best crack. And I always like, I've done it a couple of times and I always feel slightly like I'm the one having the fun because generally art that produce, like the art that comes out of the exhibition at the end is always like quite intimidatingly amazing. Whereas I have been, you know, making faces in my breakfast cereal with the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, that's what we did one January. We're like, every day we made faces with our breakfast cereal. We took a photo. So we had like 30 pictures of breakfast bowls. But it was fun. And I remember kind of going, I am an artist in an exhibition. It's like totally fraudulent, but going, yeah, I've always wanted to be an artist in an exhibition, and now I am. Um, and there, that, it, God, it all ties back to the city and that kind of openness. Like, Creative Dundee, go, you, are you creative? Yes. All right, then. It doesn't matter what your creativity is. Same with fun a day. Do you want to have fun and do something every day? All right, then. On, on you come. There's, there's so, it feels like there are so few barriers to accessing the, any of that. In terms of artistic integrity or intellectual rigor, or any of those slightly difficult uh, terms that that mean you might be a bit intimidated and not just join in. So, so going forward, oh, um, if you could see one thing happen in the city, what would you like it to be? Oh well, I've already mentioned my fictional uh, Dundee Arts Festival, so I think I'd probably stick to that. I think there needs to be uh, more a higher profile event and that this is a difficult thing to say because the design festival is kind of doing it they've slightly stolen thunder a little bit but and um, the idea that there's a big festival that is about bringing really exciting stuff to the city so people get to see slightly different work 
than they would normally see in Dundee and it's on their doorstep and they can come and see something they wouldn't otherwise get to see. So that element of festival, bringing things in that you wouldn't otherwise get to see, but also the, the other side of the window. So it's your window going, there's loads of stuff in the world and it's here in my town and that's amazing and that's erasing all those horizons. But equally the other side of the window that is people coming to the town for the festival and finding all the Dundee stuff and going, there's stuff in Dundee, that's amazing, Dundee's a really cool place. And I think that's, the Ignite Festival kind of isn't really doing that. And and I love the cross art formness of it. I love the collaboration of it. Like what's lovely about Dundee at the moment is there's kind of one of everything. So everybody plays together really nicely. There's not the same competition. And and that makes Ignite really successful, but it's just not visible enough. It's all hidden away. And I really, when I did the arch, I like to I like to say quite grandiose things like I deliberately programmed the arch because it was going to be massive and spectacular and it would show what you could do. Mm. And I think I just want Dundee to do something bigger and shinier and to get the social media coverage and to get the profile and to get people going, what's going on? I mean, folk over the river in Fife physically looked out their windows and went, that's over there and came for a walk over to look at the arch. I mean, it's... It'll be really hard to find another project that does that, I have to say. But um, I'm trying to think of them. But, um, oh, I don't know. I just, if I could do one thing in Dundee, it would be about that bigger ambition of arts activity, especially free stuff, for folk to have fun at. So if people want to find out a bit more about you oh, yeah. or keep up to date with what you're up to on social media, where would they do that? You can find me at Twitter. I think I'm Dow Clare. I believe I'm down Claire. I'm on Twitter. Um, don't try find me on Facebook because it's all pictures of my children and comments to my sister and stuff. Um, or I have a website. I have a very shiny website uh, that is clairedow.org. Great. Well, thank you very much. No bother at all. Thank you. And that was Claire. Uh, big thanks to her for coming on, taking time to the podcast. And there was one little term that she used and when she was talking about the sort of introduction to Chlor. And she called people shiny people. And I love that. It's such a nice little analogy of those kind of people that we can all sort of imagine what they were like. Uh, and I think I'm going to try and use that from now on. Yeah, shiny people. But anyway, yeah, so if you did enjoy the podcast, please give us a like, um, tweet it out, Go and tell your friends and hopefully we can grow this and share these stories and, and share all the insights and knowledge that are in them further afield. If you also feel that way inclined, I'd really appreciate a review on iTunes as well. That'd be fantastic. Um, but that's it for, for episode 18 and I'll catch you next week. <laughs>